0: So what um, got me to thinking about the topic that I wanted to share with you today in this study was a speech that I had the privilege to have heard given live. It was broadcast over television back in 1978. Um, That year, Harvard, in their graduating class, had a guest speaker, the famous Russian dissident and... Uh, former prisoner of Stalin, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And, uh, of course, he was speaking in Russian. It was being translated. You can read the text of the speech. It was published in book form called A World Split Apart. I have uh, put a link to this on my Facebook page, Dr. Charles H. Roberts, Dr. Charles Roberts, if you're interested in reading more. But here is a quote from that speech, which, by the way, his speech did not win him any friends at all among the left-leaning types at Harvard and the media. He said, and I quote, a decline in courage may be the most striking feature that an outsider observes and notices in the West today. Now let me stop again. In case you don't know, uh, Solzhenitsyn spent decades in some of the most horrific prison camps in Stalin's Soviet Union. So he was a man who knew something about suffering for his faith. He was a dedicated Russian Orthodox Christian Uh, world-renowned novelist. So this is the first thing he says. The decline in courage is the most striking feature an outside observer notices in the West, meaning America today. The Western world has lost its civic courage, both as a whole and separately, in each country, in each government, in each political party. Such a decline in courage is particularly noticeable among the ruling intellectual elites, causing an impression of a loss of courage in the entire society. There remain many courageous individuals, but they have no determining influence on public life. Political and intellectual functionaries exhibit this depression, passivity, and perplexity in their actions and in their statements, and even more so in their self-serving rationales as to how realistic, reasonable, and intellectual, and even morally justified it is to base state policies on weakness and cowardice. Must one point out that from ancient times, a decline in courage has been considered the first symptom of the end. And that's the end of the, the quote. <clears throat> so with that in the, in the background, I would like for us to look to see what God's Word has to say to us on the subject, first of all, of cowardice. Uh, and the only place that I've been able to find in Scripture where that particular word coward or cowardly is used it's in Revelation 21, verse 8. So please turn to that chapter, Revelation 21, and verse 8, where the apostle John hears the Lord make this declaration. Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. And I'll do all the readings because I'm doing the recording here. We wouldn't been able to, would not be able to hear it if uh, I had you I had called on you. So please forgive me for that part of it. Revelation 21, 7 to 8. I'm reading this from the New King James Version. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So that word translated cowardly in most all translations, it's, that's the word it's given except for the King James Version where it's rendered as fearful, it's the Greek word "delios." And here in Revelation, it has a negative, undesirable attribute. Now, this same Greek word is used in Matthew and Mark's account of the miracle of Christ calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee while he and his apostles are out in the boat. And he chides them for being afraid or cowardly in the face of the tempest and that account, as in the passage of Revelation, cowardice Is linked to a lack of faith, a lack of belief, and so let's consider some examples of cowardly fear in the Bible. Uh, Turn to Exodus chapter three, verse eleven. Exodus three, verse eleven. When God uh, asked Moses to lead the covenant nation from bondage, do you remember what Moses' immediate reaction to God's announcement was? Here it is in chapter 3, verse 11, I'm reading from the ESV this time, Exodus 3, 11. but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now there may well have been valid reasons for Moses to raise that question, but whatever the reasons for Moses' protest here, there is an element of fear and timidity and a hint of wanting to run from the battle. Uh, look at uh, chapter 4, verses 10 and 13, particularly verse 13, Exodus 4, 10 to 13. Notice what he says in verse 13. This is from the Common English Bible Translation. But Moses said, please, my Lord, just send someone else. He just doesn't want to do this. Now, if you'll turn over to the book of Numbers, chapter 14, Numbers, chapter 14, and locate verse 1. Um, After the uh, Israelites have left Egypt, most of them become a nation of cowards. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 1, we read Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, in the New Testament, there are several examples of cowardice or faithless fear, which are held up to us as examples. Now, the apostle Peter, of course, was a man whose fear and cowardice led him to deny the Lord on that occasion that we know about. And Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, was a cowardly man. He was cowardly because he feared the Jews and so consented to the murder of Christ. He knew he was innocent, but he was afraid of what might happen if he took the stand against what they wanted. And the apostles, as a group, were also gripped by cowering fear and following the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. So those are just a few examples of cowardice or cowardly activity in the Bible. There are others. But let's turn to examples of courage or bravery in the Bible. Uh, We can say generally that Abraham was a man of courage, however inconsistent he may have been, because frankly it took courage, both physical and spiritual, for him to leave the home of his father and his ancestors, leave his native land, and go off on this great journey that the Lord had called him on. He knew nothing about it. And the same may be said of Moses and, and Isaac and David, all these men, they manifested great courage at key points in their lives, and the Lord both blessed them and rewarded them for it. Now, there's an example in the New Testament that perhaps many of us are not aware of or familiar with. I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 15, Mark 15 and locate verse 43, Mark 15:43 in uh, the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea was evidently a man of great wealth and position in that society during the time of Jesus' ministry. He was a member of the uh, ruling council of the Pharisees. And now look at what it says in Mark 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And at a time when it would had gained him nothing, Joseph came forward to ask for the body of Jesus to see that it was given a proper burial. Now the enemies of Jesus among the scribes and Pharisees would have not liked that very much. And the reason being that they knew that since Rome executed Jesus as a criminal for capital crimes, His body belonged then to the Roman state, that was the rule, and would therefore have been normally buried in a common grave outside the city, which has suited them fine. To the Jews, that would have been a fitting end to a man whom they wanted very much to have no high standing among the people at all. And so it's highly unusual for someone of Joseph of Arimathea's Stature to approach a Roman governor and request the body of a common criminal, and even more striking, was his willingness to go against his fellow elders in Israel and give Jesus a proper burial. That took courage. Now we also gain uh, from considering examples of godly courage from church history. Uh, Among the early church fathers, we have numerous examples of men who showed great courage in the face of terrible persecution. And in the case of a man like Athanasius, the courage was shown by his willingness to oppose heresy from within the church. I believe the Latin phrase is Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world, because he was the only voice among the leaders of the church in that era, in that early church time, who was speaking up for the true Orthodox faith, as we have expressed in the Nicene Creed. And then reformers like Luther, Calvin, and Knox, they were men of great courage. It was said uh, about John Knox that when he died, he was a man who feared nothing, a man who knew nothing about fear. Now, um, I would like for us to consider how, in our time, we might consider the example of a name some of you will know, J. Gresham Machen. Uh, Dr. Machen was a professor at Princeton. He came from a very, very well-to-do old Southern family in Baltimore, Maryland. He was raised in the old PCUS denomination, Uh, a a well-to-do family of influence, and he had very high standing as a New Testament scholar at Princeton University. But he was very, very concerned about the direction of the Presbyterian Church at that time in the early 20th century. And so from the world standpoint, he had nothing to gain and everything to lose by standing against the liberalism in the church we today call the PCUSA. But he was willing to do that. Um, You know, he might consider that there's a risk in doing something like that. Uh, We might consider the risk that godly courage and, and fighting the good fight is something that's exercised only in the face of, say, some world historical opposition. I mean, we talked about Athanasius, and I'm talking about J. Gresham Machen. Um, but the fact is, the ordinary Christian really isn't called on to show courage and bravery in his days or day-to-day affairs. That, that's what some people think. You know, acting with godly courage is something for people who, you know, have their name up on the dais, uh, up on the billboard. But no, we are called upon to fight the fight and engage the battle. And so, I want to mention briefly causes of cowardice and what Christians can do in confronting this problem in our lives. And I would say, in our time, this is especially a challenge for men. It concerns all of us, but men are supposed to be the examples of godly courage. Uh, Turn to the book of Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 29 and locate verse 25. Proverbs 29 25. Proverbs 29:25. I'm going to read this from a couple of di- different translations to you know, get the, the meaning across. Um, in the New King James version, it says, "The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in Jehovah shall be safe." Uh, another translation, "The fear of man is a cause of danger, but whoever puts his faith in the Lord will have a safe place on high." And one more, people are trapped by their fear of others, those who trust the Lord. Are secure. So, too often, for men especially, the question that we ask ourselves is what are my friends going to think if I say this or if I do this, if I make this stand? What will my coworkers or my fellow church members think of me if I make this stand? And so, uppermost in our minds tends to be the approval of others rather than a strident, unswerving faithfulness to God and His truth. So that's one cause of cowardice among people today. Another cause is the fear of Satan, the fear of the devil. Now, I don't mean by that fear in the sense that we cower in a corner because we see demons all over the place, you know. But some people end up running from the battles because we operate on the profoundly anti-biblical assumption that the devil has more power than God. And so with that pessimistic attitude and assumption, we drop the sword and turn and run from the fight. And then finally, I'll suggest that our own lack of faith and maturity in Christ can cause us to run away from the good fight of faith. God's Word exhorts us to work out our own salvation, and that is we are to engage ourselves in those exercises of godliness which the Holy Spirit will, will use to cause us to grow and grow strong in our faith and trust in Him. Um, I, I, I'll have to ask you to use your imagination here uh, for a moment. But um, well, let me start by asking you a question. And, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to pass any judgment one way or the other. How many of you have ever seen a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger? There's a few brave souls willing to admit they've seen a Schwarzenegger movie. You know, we don't usually picture a guy, at least in his heyday, a guy that looks like him as a man of timid fear and cowardice. It's hard to imagine who is either well-armed or well-built with a a powerful physique as a coward. And that's so because the very image that that person portrays is that he's fit for battle. You know, whether he's got guns and grenades or whether he looks like he's somebody you wouldn't want to fight. And that imagery is appropriate for describing our Christian walk. Because we too must be well-conditioned and well-armed spiritually so that we can fight that battle. Now, we do need to remember that God is sovereign, of course, and it's ultimately in His strength and alone that we must rest and rely for victory in all of our struggles. But we must never forget that we have our part to play in that. And let's remember that we are Calvinists. We're not quietists. And the Scripture commands us to engage the battle and thereby become God's instruments for the furtherance of His kingdom. So what then can we do to ensure those things in our lives. Well, let me suggest very briefly in closing these four things, ponder, pray and practice. First, we must ponder the word of God. Since we're in a battle, we must have a battle plan. And that battle plan is given to us in the Bible. And then likewise, we must pray to our God. All the great men of godly courage were also men of godly prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you should, at a moment's notice, be able to pray a sermon, so to speak, and eloquently roll words off your lips like a noted orator. But it does mean that you should spend time daily in prayer and meditation with your Heavenly Father. And then finally, we must practice. Spiritual skill is no less skill than physical skill. And I believe the Lord wants us, each of us, to be so living our lives that um, we daily have opportunities to practice our spiritual skills. Maybe in your case it's setting aside some time to study the Bible or or theological writings or the history of the church. Maybe it means that you take note of some area in your life where you face great temptation and you daily set aside time to to practice dealing with that. So let me conclude in leaving you with these words from the man I referred to a moment ago, Dr. J. Gresham machin he says, quote, the Christian life is a warfare after all. Yes, the Christian faces mighty conflict in this world. Pray to God that in that conflict you may be true men, good soldiers of Jesus Christ, not willing to compromise with your great enemy, not easily cast down and seeking ever the renewing of your strength in the word of and sacraments and in prayer. End of quote.